Hi, I'm Tyra G, your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yeah, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week we meet at this table to experience, inspire, educate, encourage, and empower one another through our joys and our lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us they're just some things we don't talk about. But here, here we live beyond both the judgment and the wreckage. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for way too long. Every week we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into the darkness, there's no insignificant person around this table. However, You must be dressed in your inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, Cablecast on Cox and Verizon Files, Channel 37, and Comcast, Channel 27 in Reston. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us, no worry. You can catch our archived shows wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Just key in Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. And if you really feel like connecting with me offline, that's fun too. Email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com Thank you so very much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. This week, we're going to explore familiar term from a different perspective. This week, we're going to talk and think about legacy as a component of life and living rather than just something one leaves behind. We're operationally defining legacy as learning from the past, living in the present, and building for the future. Did you know that the best place to plant a young tree is in a clearing in an old-growth forest and not an open field? Why, Tyra? I'm glad you asked. Ecologists tell us that a young tree grows better when it's planted in an area with older trees. Now, this is a good part. The reason, it seems, is that roots of the young tree are able to follow the pathways created by former trees and implant them more deeply. Over time, the roots of many trees may actually graft themselves to one another, creating an intricate, interdependent foundation hidden under the ground. In this way, stronger trees share resources with weaker ones so that the whole forest becomes healthier. Now that's legacy, an interconnection across time with a need for those who have come before us 
and a responsibility to those who come after us. Let me say that again. Legacy, an interconnection across time with a need for those who have come before us and a responsibility to those who come after us. A legacy may take many forms, children, grandchildren, a business, an ideal, a book, a community, a home, some piece of ourselves. How many of us are living our lives so that our legacy reflects all that we truly hold most dear and near? How many of us are living with integrity and courage? The world isn't connected by molecules. It's connected by stories, traditions, memories, hopes, and dreams. We're connected by the legacies passed down from those who came before us and the legacies we pass down to those who come after us. Now for children, legacy means learning from the past. It separates the timeless from the transient. Children have a feeling of security and continuity that comes from knowing that there are adults who care about them. They come to realize that we all face choices in our lives, often difficult ones, which help them prepare for whatever may come. Learning about the whole of life as well as its end also helps them establish their own values and priorities. And instead of directly telling children all of this, we need to tell them our life stories and our choices and how we made our decisions. That's the way you get children to learn from you about you. Now for adults, legacy means hoping for the future. It means developing and passing on a timeless part of ourselves. We feel valued and useful no matter how old we get. We come to terms with our accomplishments and our disappointments. We create personal meaning and purpose. We realize that we do our bit in the grand scheme of things. Our tiny gestures multiply in significance. We understand that the world we live in, the world we leave behind, the world of our children and our children's children to inherit. For both the young and old, the power of legacy enables us to fully live fully in the present. You understand that you're part of a larger community, a community that must remember its history. Legacy is very much about life and living. Joining me at the table this evening is an example of someone who understands this very fact. His is a story that needs telling. I welcome to the table Colonel, Colonel Arthur R. Nicholson. And I'm going to call him Nick because he's given me permission to do that. Author of Dancing on the Razor's Edge, a story of leadership and triumph. But wait, that's only the beginning of Nick's legacy. Nick, I want you to take the mic now and share with our audience through your own lens, your why and how you arrived where you are today. What passionate legacies, and notice I said plural, are you involved in? It's your mic. Hello, this is Nick here, and uh, I just wanted to say that I am a retired Air Force uh, Colonel uh, at this point. Uh, I grew up in Clarksville, Tennessee, and um, at the age of 18, joined the Air Force and 
Um, stayed in it almost uh, in the Air Force and Air Force Reserve, almost 40 years to be honest. Uh, joined the Air Force about six months after high school. Um, and uh, also uh, retired from civil service in 2016, Air Force in 2013, and moved back to Clarksville, Tennessee in um, 2017. Uh, built a home on my farm and been here ever since. Um, Ira asked me to share with you some of the things that I'm very passionate about. And uh, one of the things that I am passionate about is entrepreneurship, and that came from um, advice early on in life from my grandfather. Um, when he told me, uh, sitting on his front porch to count your, count your money before they do. Uh, <laughs> and he was always, an, that's what he said. And he was always an entrepreneur. And I, I really didn't realize what that meant until sometime later. Uh, and it, it came to me that he was talking about entrepreneurship. He was a farmer. And he did several things as a farmer, um, um, you know, with growing crops, but he had a restaurant and um, he was just my idol because he, he did so many things and he did them so well. So I learned that lesson very uh, young and I incorporated that into my life over um, the Air Force and civil service and always had a, a kind of a side business. And uh, always was intrigued with entrepreneurship. Um, since moving back to Clarksville, I've um, I, I had a business, but I'm uh, the president and CEO of SIE Global Enterprises, a contract consulting firm. Um, SIE Global Publishing, a publishing firm. Nicholson Farms LLC, and also LPCE Nicholson Leadership Foundation, which I uh, started last year to honor my grandfather grandmother, my mother, and my father. I wanted to just make an imprint on Clarksville and the Montgomery County area um, about their legacy, as, as Tara talked about. Um, that That is uh, that's primo for me at this point in my life. Uh, additionally, I'm the executive director and president of Mount Olive Cemetery Historical Preservation Society. And that's an organization here in Clarksville that uh, uh, in charge of a, a cemetery, um, one of the largest uh, African-American cemeteries in this area uh, with the initial burial in 1817 and last burial in 1958. So, uh, you know, the mission of the society is uh, to preserve and maintain that uh, cemetery and and really to research the, the stories and the struggles of those interred there and, and tell their stories. Um, we, we have a saying that those interred there won't die twice. Oh, I like and that. I like that. It, yeah. It, the, what that means is that uh, the saying won't die twice means that, you know, we die once when we stop breathing and we die twice when someone mentions our name the last time. And so our mission of the society is to make sure we understand and discover um, the struggle of those in, at Mount Olive and uh, to tell their story and mention their names uh, anytime that we can um, with uh, all the vigor that we can um, about Clarksville and the Montgomery County area because they were slaves here. They served here in uh, various um, capacities to be, as civilians. Um, and we have 
32 veterans, uh, 30 U.S. color troops, one World War II soldier, and one um, um, Buffalo soldier. So, you know, we try to research that and make sure that their lives are not forgotten here in the Clarksville, Montgomery County area. That's that's very much a passion, very much about what Tara was talking about as far as the legacy is concerned. Nick, let me ask you something. Um, <clears throat> there are attempts at preservation researching across the United States, people who have passions about making sure people don't die twice. I love that. Um, what kind of, if any, uh, hurdles, challenges have you encountered or what kind of blessings? I mean, how did things work out better than you expected in this particular endeavor? Actually, we have, a, we have people, um, I call them the committed few, uh, our board members. And one is our historian uh-huh. and she's very passionate about research. Um, there would, I'm see, I forget what year it was, but for a while, um, you know, obituaries weren't, um, and not obituaries, but there weren't any records of burials. There weren't any records of this, that, and whatever. So, yes. um, the documentation that we have, um, comes from archives, comes from various sources, uh, the military individuals um, have pension records that uh, are very uh, feral in some ways, and so we get a lot of information from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we 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 search the archives. We go to Washington D.C. or she does, and and search for individuals that we know are interred there that we have headstones of their names. And um, but it is you know only ten percent of the graves have headstones, oh, and wow. uh, we have. Uh, by way of ground penetration, an estimate over 1,350 plus residents in the cemetery. The cemetery oh my goodness! It is. It's about 7.24 acres, and um, so we are constantly trying to, um, you know, understand who's buried there. Right. Um, right. Even even how they were buried there, uh, in some ways, uh, because there's no rhyme or reason with how they are interred. Um, so, yeah, it is a challenge to try to figure out who is, and uh, but we, we just continue to research. And you know what, what uh, we're seeing the trends, uh, I guess the most popular is like Ancestry.com, uh, people looking for their history, and but for people of color, Sometimes we've got to dig a lot deeper, and sometimes it's not to be found. So, um, do do you, you said the research is is she a genealogist or what? She she just no, she's she's not. She was a history teacher, and that's just her passion. Okay. And um, over the years, she's been uh, you know she's gotten really good at it, mm-hmm. and uh, at, at um, each one of our meetings, she. Uh, she researches and, uh, and gives a, uh, a bibliography of whoever she's found um, information about in the cemetery. And that's very rewarding to hear yeah. about um, the struggles of those in the cemetery. So she has a knack for gathering that information. And I, I don't know all of the avenues that she researches and rabbit holes that she goes down to try to figure out who's who. <laughs> yeah. Because it's very intricate. Uh, 
So, but it, it, it is, she does it and she does it well. She's very passionate about it. Well, you need to say her name so she can get a shout out on the show. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, her name is Phyllis Smith. All right. Uh, uh, she, like I said, she when she when she comes across the information and is able to put it together in a bibliography, we put it on our webpage, and she owns it. She All right. She owns it. Phyllis yeah. Smith. Yes. That's mm-hmm. excellent. Well, now that's personal uh, legacy activity passion. I know there's another one because. Uh, I think that's how we start talking about your being on the show. What is that? What are we talking about? The legacy. Are that... we talking about? Yeah, we. Are talk... we talking about the book? Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, Dancing on the razor's edge. Yeah. And yeah, we're going to. I want you to first of all really get into why did you name the book that? It's intriguing. It really is. Actually, I, I was given a speech. I think it was yesterday or the day before. But uh, what happened is um, I was installed as a commander in 2007, and uh, there was to be a reinspection of this unit. Uh, in tw- I think it was 18 months uh, after I got in- installed. But the unit uh, was marginal to satisfactory in its performance, and so uh, I was charged with um, getting the unit past its next inspection. And um, at w- each month, there was always something to deal with. Uh, it was just, it was just crazy. I remember always having to decompress before I went home, almost every day. And uh, after about, let's see, eleven months in, and we were about a month away from the inspection or something like that, some things happened. And uh, I went back to my office, and the, just the thought came to me uh, that this experience was like dancing on the razor's edge. And I wrote it down on a post-it and, and, and literally forgot about it. And when I left command, um, I, you know, was inspired to write the book. And I was grappling about what the title of the book was going to be, actually. And I ran across this post-it. And it was like, voila. You know, what's interesting is you just gave a testimony that post-its work. <laughs> you know, it was well, still there, right? It was still there because that was just a visceral feeling that I had <laughs> when I went back to my office. And it was just crazy. That whole 18 months was just. Well, Nick, tell us what what kind of unit was it and why was it so critical to the mission? Well, the unit was a uh, it was a medical examination unit. It was critical to the mission because the mission um, of the unit was to make sure that everybody was wartime ready. Uh, Pilots, all of the people who were in the what's called their wing, that they were ready to go to war or ready to deploy at moment's notice. And so you had to make that call whether they were good to go or not good to go um, for, uh, you know, the value of the wing. And um, um, so so that was the mission. And uh, that's why it was critical that we do it right. Um, and when you fill an inspection like that, um, it means a failure of leadership and a failure of mission. And uh, that that could not continue to happen. Well, let me ask one more question before you continue. Uh, this is an international audience. Many of them are women. 
So when yeah. you use the terminology, the value of the wing, you have not yet shared what position you held in service. And I think that adds to the story myself because I've read the book. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, in the Air Force, um, the Army has different uh, nomenclatures for their different groups. But um, in the Air Force, um, uh, at the base level, you have a wing and then you have a group and then you have a squadron okay. and then you have a unit. Okay. And I was at the, uh, I commanded um, two squadrons on that particular base, three and another command. But um, um, so I was a commander over two squadrons. When you have three squadrons, it's a group. And then when you have more than two or three groups, it's a wing. So um, that's, I reported to a wing commander. Okay. Uh, who was a colonel. And, uh, but that's the, that's kind of how it worked. And we need to give a shout out to the Air Force, this being its 75th anniversary, right? Hey, go Air Force. Go Air Force. <laughs> yeah. So to be in the Air Force, does one have to be a pilot to be a colonel, to be who you are? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, there are, you know, the preponderance, I, I shouldn't even say the preponderance of the Air Force uh, uh, personnel or pilots because, no, they're, uh, they're just the tip of the spear uh, because then you have the support organizations for that and, and all of the other entities uh, in the Air Force, uh, the, the disciplines in the Air Force. So you have the medical, you have the pilots, you have the logisticians. Um, you know, there's just a plethora of jobs and uh, responsibilities and, and, and career options in the Air Force. So, um you know, most bases are like most cities mm -hmm. um, in the in the sense that you have all of the entities and the organizations that run a base are kind of like a small city, you know, where mm -hmm. the base commander is the mayor. And then you have uh, all of those things that, um, you know, I always called, uh, I always told people when I was in the Air Force and I lived on base, I said I lived in a gated community. <laughs> and uh, that was <laughs> that was kind of a little joke there, but uh, I really did. You couldn't get well, you know, you, coming through the gate. You still have managed to talk for 15 minutes and not say what you did in the service. Now, I don't know how else to pull it out of you. Well, um, I did a lot of things for the first 10 years. I was, uh, I always loved to fly. And so, okay, finally. Um, yeah, I always uh, loved to fly. So, uh, I was administrative for a few years and then I was crew member on a medical, uh, mission, uh, out of Scott air force base. And I, uh, actually did that for, for 10 years, um, for a small while. I, uh, you know, I told you I always wanted to fly. So, I managed to, to, to get into pilot training. I, uh, I flew T-37s and T-38s, which were a supersonic aircraft and um, a subsonic aircraft, I should say, in uh, and, and pilot training. But I, I did not finish pilot training, but uh, I enjoyed. My vision, I think, was to fly the T-38, and I did. And That's I a very it. sexy plane. That is it's a, a very sexy plane. Yes, it my is. Lesson learned, <laughs> my lesson learned was that you know, my dream uh, wasn't as big as my vision, if you will. So I, I think I kind of let down after 
knowing that I could fly that aircraft and uh, just kind of got sloppy and uh, wasn't didn't complete pilot training, but have been a pilot uh, since 1983. I now live the dream of owning my air, own airplane, which is a Mooney, and here in Tennessee. So, um, you know, yeah. uh, I always tell people that a failure doesn't mean your life is a failure. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's and my philosophy is separating what happens to us from who we are, you know, and that whole failure experience. That's what you have to see it as a circumstance. And yeah, you know, so at least you flew one of the sexiest planes out there. Well, yeah. You know, when I was growing up, I'm old enough and people, most of your audience probably won't uh, realize this, but or didn't live it, but when I when the TV went off back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, there was there was the last thing on the TV was high flight. Yes, and high flight was about <clears throat> this T thirty eight and this guy talking, and the last thing that he said, uh, he was like going over the lofty skies and this and that. But the last thing he said, I uh, flew so high or something. I'm paraphrasing that I felt like I could reach out and touch the face of God. Or the yes. Hand of God yes. Or I remember it. I you remember that. Yes. Yes. That was, that was, I mean, every, I probably stayed up <laughs> on school nights just to see that. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I've always uh, had a passion for flying and um, it's remained with me throughout my life. Which is wonderful. Wonderful. So here you are in this unit that has, been crippled by their performance level and your task your task should you accept is to bring them up to the point where they can pass inspection and perhaps exceed expectations right exactly so you came up with and i want you to talk about how you walked into this uh methodology um well um it was interesting because i had a mentor Mm-hmm. Um, because I had worked at higher headquarters and when I became a colonel in 2006, um, you know, uh, I wanted to command, you know, um, like Jack Nicholson said in that movie, I wanted to stand on that wall, really, you know, <laughs> I wanted to be tested. I mean, really, I, I really did because, um, you know, um, I, I had been Lieutenant Colonel, whatever, and been in leadership positions, but being a commander, uh, was just the test. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted that. And um, my mentor uh, said, hey, you should take this unit. And it was very interesting because at headquarters where I work, you could tell what units did and how they performed in that. And so going in, I knew that this unit would subpar. But it was interesting. After about a month in command, my uh, my mentor called me and he said, Nick, I'm so sorry. And I was like, sir, what's going on? He said, this situation is much worse than I, I thought. I was like, really? <laughs> and, you know, I just thought, I just threw my hands up. I was like, bigger opportunity, right? But it really was. It, was a, it, it, it really was a, a kind of a deflating kind of a phone call, uh, you know. And I was like, really? But, you know, it, it was something that I was in. And, uh, you know, the bottom was the bottom, and we had to go from there. So um, very diverse group of individuals uh, uh, on the East Coast uh, at Andrews Air Force Base, one of the most um, diverse group of people that I have ever led. 
And, uh, you know, from women to men to economic to uh, it was social or it was a lot of different uh, elements to deal with. And um, they had really been deflated by their uh, the former commander who, after the inspection, got fired six months after. And then I was installed. Uh, and um, it, it was just a challenge. It was just a heck of a challenge. And uh, uh, the person who installed me, her name was uh, Stacy Harris. And uh, she was a colonel also of the wing, and she retired as a three-star general from the Air Force, just a legendary individual. But she was my top cover. She was my top cover, and um, I knew going in I had to, at that first meeting, I had to talk about a a lot of things. And uh, one of the things that I told them is that we, they were extraordinary people, and we could get an outstanding on the next inspection. And they looked at me, and I know they were saying, what is this guy smoking? <laughs> so, I know they did because I was like, really? You know, they were deflated. They were had failed the inspection. And I was telling them that we could be outstanding, which was the highest rating that you could get on inspection at the time. Right. Uh, that Yes. And then I talked to them about, I just shared a few concepts that I had come up with. Uh, one was the committed few uh, with, um, with a vision and a purpose can uh, influence the uncommitted many. And I knew going in that I, I, I only had a committed few that believed in me beyond the uh, person that installed me in that position. I talked to them about being a part of something great because uh, I had been a part of something great as a child uh, and as the uh, Air Force member and I knew what that feeling was about. And so I shared with them what being a part of something great was. Mm-hmm. And that was being a part of something that's larger than you. And uh, ultimately, I shared with them um, something that I had come up with. And it's called practicing lap. And that's leadership, accountability, and professionalism. Mm-hmm. And I knew uh, going in, I, I just, you know, as I took command and I was, thinking about what I needed to say during that first meeting, this concept I was blessed with and it came up and I I wanted something that when I said practicing lap, they knew exactly what I was talking about. You know, it was, it was the leadership of self. It was accountability of self. It was professionalism of self going forward in all and always. And I, I wanted that to extend, not just from the unit, not just from the individual, but in their other parts of their lives, mm-hmm. um, because when they showed up, I didn't need them to get their leadership mojo on like 10 hours after they showed up. When they walked through the door, they needed to be leaders. They needed to be about the mission. They needed to be about getting it done. And I couldn't, you know, I knew I could not um, wait for them to get that. They had to have it. They had to come in with it. So that's why I created that. So, so they, they could come in with it. They could walk away with it. They could be leaders and practice lap in their homes, in their churches, in their whatever they went. They could be practicing lap. And that's why I came up with the, the concept. Well, can you give an example? I mean, those are three terms that uh, lend themselves to interpretation based on who we are. Why don't you talk about how it worked in your unit? Well, I tell you, it, it really worked. 
because what I found out as a commander mm-hmm. is you 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 can't just show up, blow up, and have others clean up your mess. Correct. Uh, you really have to walk the talk, and that, that was one of the and, and you know you're in a fishbowl number one because everybody's trying to figure out if, if you're the real deal. And so um, when you espouse all those things that I just talked about, mm-hmm. um, y- you have to be the example first. Okay. And um, it was, you know, it, just the smallest thing. You know, we had a building and um, sometimes maybe the janitor wouldn't clean up everything or maybe somebody dropped a piece of paper. Well, they were not used to the commander just walking down the hall, picking up a piece of paper or taking a broom or doing and just the little things that I wanted them to uh, experience, to have pride in the organization, pride in the mission, pride in what we were trying to do. So I had no issues rolling up my sleeves and being one of them when mm-hmm. I needed to be. Right. I, I knew my place. I knew my place as a leader, but I had no problem getting in the dirt with them to do what needed to be done or just showing them that, hey, don't walk by this piece of paper. Don't walk by the closet door that's open 10 times. You know, at least one time, close the doggone door, right? (laughs) I mean, uh, it was just simple things like that, I think, that uh, hopefully I'm answering your question about how you – show them and how leadership and accountability and professionalism play out just in your daily walk in life. What I'm hearing you, know? you say is be the expectation. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Be the example. Be the mm-hmm. expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk the talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and, yeah. and that's, what, that's what it's about. Well, okay. That's what it's about. I know you said they were wondering what you were smoking. Uh, <laughs> what what evidence did you have that you turned the corner and this was possible to attain the uh, outstanding eval? Were there there had to be behavioral clues or attitudinal clues that told you, okay, I'm on the right track and we can make this. What was the turning point or the trigger? Actually. Um you know, I shared with you those concepts that I shared with them after the first meeting. And then, and actually after that first meeting, mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was very interesting um, that they came up with, um, what it was it? It was uh, the unit, the committed to a part of something great practicing lab. They kind of came up with that after, and I was just, I was so proud that they had just, they had grasped the concept, and that's what they were calling them. That was, that, that was their, our identity at that time. Great. And they did that. That was, that was great. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and that was kind of the first thing that I said, okay, we, we have some people who are drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so, yep. uh, and, and that, that was really cool for me to hear that after that first meeting. But, you know, when you're you have an organization that has experienced what this organization has experienced over the life of the organization, there's always some uh, I always tell people that, you know, it's like a river on the top. The water may be going in one way, but under the bottom, 
uh, I'm beneath that. The water may be going a whole different way. Yep. And unless you dive in, you wouldn't experience that undercurrent. Mm-hmm. So that was some of the things that we dealt with going down through there for those 18 months. Um, you know, um, you mentioned some, some, you mentioned ahead. mentors a couple of times, and uh, one <laughs> one guided you into your situation, but um, I'm sure you had support along the way. Can you come up with some of the best advice you received that prepared you to manage what you had to manage and and exceed expectations? Oh, God, let's see. Um, I I, I don't know that there was anything specific that uh, someone said to me other than those concepts that I came up with. Mm -hmm. What what I knew going in, because I had interviewed with my boss, Okay. And she selected me for the position. Is I knew without a doubt that she had my top cover. Okay. That was that was you know I knew if nobody else trusted me, <laughs> you know the other commanders or you know just some of the people in my unit, I knew I had her trust, and I knew I could go to her, uh, and and talk things through. And and she would have my back on those things, and and I respected her. I just didn't go whining. I went with facts. I was everything I went with her was fact based. Where I needed money, or whether I needed. I mean, uh, I think one month into the command, I had to fire my second in command. Wow. And uh, he and that person was, I think, a lieutenant colonel. And I had to go to her and say, Hey, this needs to happen. She mm-hmm. supported me on that. And, you know, reverberations went throughout the unit. But, you know, I say in the book that the benefit of that is that when that happened, people knew, number one, I was serious. Mm-hmm. And I would do anything that it took to make this happen. And so, you know, uh, she supported me on those very visceral issues. Mm-hmm. Um, she supported us financially when I needed the money to do the things that we needed to do. Um you know, that was, that was really good. And I, I think um, I, one of the things that I, I did when I went in and I interviewed the top leadership in the unit mm-hmm. and I kind of identified my confidant. Okay. I, yeah. I, uh, I said, Hey, yes, you're a person, you're one of my go-to people. And uh, one of them was a doctor. Uh, the other person was my first sergeant. Uh, so I, I had a few people that identified right off the bat that um, I could go to uh, from my position and, and get things done. And you had mentioned earlier you used the word trust. Um, and I think you were at the time talking about you knew your mentor trusted you and you trusted. Well, I think at the time we we're talking about maybe Daisy. I don't know which one. Stacy, yeah, that was Stacy. Uh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that I did, I go, did that was um, very interesting because, like I said, I knew um, my boss trusted me, and you know, maybe a few people trusted me out of respect for my position or whatever. But um, I, I knew the most of them did uh, because I knew how downtrodden they had been. And so one of the things I, I did uh, during that first meeting is I asked them for their trust. Okay. I said, I said, listen, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna be upfront with you. I, you don't know me, and you just know my history, and you know the person who chose me. And I said, hey, you just give me time to gain your trust, mm-hmm. and I guarantee you that will happen because I'm gonna walk the talk. And I just I just put it out there, and um, I didn't assume that they would because of my position or my being being a colonel. I just said, hey, we're in this together. And uh, they didn't realize this as a unit and uh, as individuals, but after I took command, higher, higher headquarters had told me that if we did not pass inspection, um, can you hear, still hear me? I can. Okay. If we did not pass inspection, that the unit was going to be dissolved in hope. And um, I, I took that all the way to the inspection because I couldn't tell anybody about it. Now, that was extra, so, extra weight for you. It it was it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it was it was all of those things. Um, you know, we had uh, I think it was six months into the command. You have a unit, what's called a unit climate survey, which is really a unit personnel survey to kind of understand how the personnel are doing under your command or whatever. But we had some legacy issues of uh, uh, cultural. Uh, disconnects, uh, trust issues, perceived mm-hmm. discrimination, uh, individual and organizational trust issues. Uh, and, and those were really some serious things that um, had to be dealt with as their leader. Um, and um, that, that was just one of the hiccups going down through there. You know, you're trying to do the mission, you're trying to correct the mission, you're trying to put everybody on course, and then you got to deal with this, this stuff. And yeah. that, was, that was interesting. It seems to me... Um, well, at least the one thing I know about organizations, and you just talked about how diverse it was, which meant that you had uh, multiple communication styles, multiple expectations, multiple learning styles, multiple stories that were getting in the way of their performance. Yeah, it, it had, it sounds like, and it had to be, and from reading your book, I know it was. Speaking of the book, why don't you tell our audience how you put it together? and why you put it together that way, and how you ended each section. Okay. Um, yeah, after command, I, I just, I, I just, that experience was just so overwhelming. Um, and it's something I had never done in my life. Um, the, and, and, and the success of it, you know, it wasn't my success. It was their success. It was the success of the whole organization. Right. I just felt like the story needed to be told. The, con- the leadership concepts needed to be shared. And I thought that they were not just germane to military command. I thought, hey, these, these things are can be used throughout um, industry, uh, through the school system and churches or whatever, um, because they're just basic concepts, Um and so that's my impetus of, of writing and sharing that experience. And uh, the book was put together really uh, going down through as, you know, uh, the months or the episodes that I dealt with. Right. Uh, under the practice of laugh, uh, being a part of something great. So all those things that I, I mentioned early on are chapters in the book and, uh, I guess, um, you know, since I was about eight years old, for some reason, I've written thoughts. Yeah. And um, 
this was an opportunity to, and this was before the second book, to kind of incorporate those thoughts and other thoughts that uh, motivated me throughout my life um, in the book um, to just before that related to the subject matter of a chapter, if I had a thought process that uh, uh, I could launch um, uh, doing the first page of that chapter, I would put that in there. Do you so have your book handy? I do have it handy, yes, of course. Yeah, of course you do. You should have more than one. <laughs> <laughs> but just um, an example always works, okay? So the first page of a chapter, you might want to read one of the quotes or one of the thoughts and then how you end the chapter as well, the takeaways. Okay, you know what? I didn't have anything really marked. Um, oh, just flip the book open. They're all okay. Good. So one of the this is chapter two, and this is about establishing the vision. I, what I say here is, and this is on top. It says most people grow up and conform to the parameters that have been set before them. Then there are those who make their own parameters. These are the dreamers, and then I talk about establishing your vision mm -hmm. uh, as a leader and uh, and I you know just you know talk about the vision talk about you know the committed few practicing lab and then on all of the chapters I had what and I, I don't know where I got this from but I just said you know I had leadership takeaways right you know? mm -hmm. and it was just about you know just if you wanted to short read the book then all you have to do is read the quote at the beginning of the chapter and read the takeaways, and you surely would have the essence of the chapter. And so, you know, some of the things that is in the end of this chapter of establishing vision is a leader who creates, communicates, and cultivates his or her own vision with passion, sincerity, and inclusiveness will raise the consciousness of those they lead and ultimately lead the organization to greatness. So that's just one of the thoughts at the end of that chapter um you know well what i what i liked about it is it is a uh teaching aid and uh for someone that may not be as organized uh and entering into a mission it's a good uh methodology to follow and then they can tweak it to make it their own so i thought it was very very well done as uh I won't say a textbook, but definitely a teaching aid. Um, I found it also fascinating because you sent me a bookmark in the book. And I didn't look at it until I finished the book. And it's the me to we. Oh, really? Yeah. I had it because it was so pretty. I didn't want to get it dog-eared. And then I looked at it. I said, the me to we bookmark, and you got to flip it. Well, how did you come up with that? Yeah, that, that was very interesting. It seemed like every month, like I said, there was something to address as a commander. We'd have these Saturday morning meetings before we launched into the mission. And so um, we were we were doing well. We were we were doing well by all accounts. And then um, it, it seemed like people who had their section or their division or whatever it was uh, that they were in charge of, if it had passed the inspection, the previous inspection, because the unit failed the overall inspection, but there were sections within the unit that passed. And so, you know, we had launched out on this, we're all in energy, but it, it kind of 
faltered. And the people who had passed, it was like, well, we passed, so we don't really have anything to do. And, uh, you know, we're just going to, you know, just continue what we were doing and we know we'll pass it. So I saw that. I saw that and I felt that. So I, I had to address it. And I, I just, I'm very thankful that um, I was able to come up with um, antidotes to these situations that address these issues head on. And in trying to figure out uh, this situation, you know, I said, hey, you know, I got to make them understand that it's not about the me. It's about the we. Mm -hmm. You know, if, 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 if the unit fails, you fail. Right. If the unit wins, we all win. Correct. And to be honest with you, I mean, I would just wrote me down. I had this for some reason. I, I sometimes when I look at numbers and I look at words and I look at things, my mind kind of um, does something, and uh, I kind of come up with different things. So anyway, I wrote me down on a piece of paper. And then I wrote we down on a piece of paper because the concept was me to we. Right. And then it, the epiphany was that if you flip the me downside up, right, it becomes we. Yeah. And that's what's so, and, that's what's so cool visually. Of course, we're on radio. It so. is. It is. So, I mean, I understand. But what I did is, uh, you know, during that meeting, I, uh, I had one of our guys set it up on a, uh, on a board on kind of a, you know, piece of uh, a large sheet of paper or whatever you call that. And, um, and I had, you know, the me and then the we on the other side and the way that we, we drew it, the, the me and the, we were, were one, you know, they placed it on the back of the paper type thing. And so I, I, you know, I set up the presentation and I talked to him about, Hey, you know, launching out on this journey, you know, you know, organizational, divisional goals and individual, that's all good because we had to kind of get some confidence about this, that, and whatever. But I said, you know, hey, at this point, we got to have a collective thought about this unit going forward. And, and I have to I have to interrupt you, so we have to make a choice. We can okay. make sure we include all of your letter or we can – we can we should read your letter to your younger self, then we can come back to me and we. How about that? Okay, I don't know. What do you want to do? I'm, I want to do the I want because I love the letter. That I'm being very selfish. Okay. Well, I'll uh, read the letter now. Is that what we want to do? <laughs> That's what we want to do. Okay. This is and this took a lot of thought, uh, but I you know I just thought about the things that I uh, I dealt with in life and I wrote this so I said Nick I'm writing this letter to you and hope that you will accept the lessons learned in life as wisdom that I'm imparting to you if only I had I had known these things or at least not ignored them in my life things would have been different so take time beyond the distractions of growing up to really find out who you are what makes you want this or that why this or that or that arouses you also understand what you are not attracted to and why. Nick, try to understand the feeling of love versus love, empathy versus sympathy, humbleness versus arrogance, and the difference between being rich versus wealthy. Understand that when the inner you says no, even in the face of lack of understanding, 
the outer view to follow. You should never settle for quantity over quality, physical beauty over inner beauty, or the quick fix over a lasting solution. Also, never seek the noises and emptiness of life's desires over the true discovery of self that solitude and the pureness of thought will provide. Nick, I found that laser focus without distraction is key to realizing what you can do, what you do not want to do, and what is your calling. Without a doubt, procrastination is the enemy of self-accomplishment on many levels. This is not to be confused with patience, which is a learned virtue. Dick always takes time to collect from the past, reflect on the present, and project into the future. Always dream, and dream big dreams. I have learned that being a leader of self means being responsible for and accountable for your actions, which ultimately means sometimes you must stand alone. Recognize that someday being in a place of financial independence with a healthy mind, body, and spirit is a place of true freedom. Nick, you will come to understand that this place will afford you and allow you the opportunity to reach back, to give back, and to pay it forward to those less fortunate. That is a good place and space to be. Lastly, in comprehending and eventually living all that I have written to you written to you about. Nick, you will never seek out happiness or contentment as both. You will never have to seek out happiness or contentment as both will be in abundance and interwoven in your life if you dream big, dream, and find purpose for living your life. That's it. I know. And you know why I wanted you to read that. Your letter to why your, is that? your letter to yourself to me encapsulates everything you said on the show. In terms of expectations, in terms of lessons learned, in terms of what you see your now is, you saw your past and you see your future. And that's right. legacy. That's legacy. You know what I'm going to, um, I'm going to have to ask you to come back because there's a lot more that I want to talk about. Um, okay. And I figured you might say, sure, Tyra, I'll come back. Not a problem. Well, let me close out the show, first of all, with a thank you. And I should have said retired colonel, right? <laughs> okay. But the irony is I don't like that word retired because I just figure we're transforming we're renewing and we're restoring so um yes okay that's formal but it's it's obvious to my listening audience that you're very active very committed very passionate and very determined that your footprint what is what you will not die twice that's what I love. I won't forget that, Nick. Thank yeah, you for that. Always, always talk about our footprint versus our imprint. Yes, yes, Our footprint, yes. And, I, and I wrote that down as you were talking about the trees and the little tree. Yes. You know, and your footprint is the connection with the other trees and how it grows out from that one tree. 
And our imprint is how deep our roots grow in our lives, which is really about legacy. And I tell my people uh, in the organization all the time that footprint is our connection with other organizations. And our imprint is how deep we leave an impression on people about what we do. And therein is our legacy. And so, therefore, you have now closed out the show. And I want to thank okay. you for that. Um, let me let me quickly say you've been listening to Frankly Speaking with Tara G on Radio Fairfax in Fairfax, Virginia. Your seat at the table is always guaranteed. Remember, you are amazing just as you are. You're stronger than you feel. You're smarter than you think. You're more beautiful than you know, and you are more in love than you can ever imagine. You're important. You came here to do something, and every day you wake up is a day that, to tell you that you're more than who you've become. Treat yourself like someone you love. And until the next time, this is Tyra G. Thinking of you and loving you.